everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right, good morning. Uh, we are, my name is Jacob, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in the final week of our Demo and Reno series. If this is your first Sunday with us, this one's going to feel a little bit different uh, because there isn't a sermon today. Uh, over the past month, we have allowed our people to submit questions, uh, questions they have about faith, questions they have about the church, uh, questions they have about the practices of discovery or the practices of Christians across the world. Uh, and we received somewhere in there of about two dozen questions. Uh, so we've gone through these questions, and we've picked some that we're talking about today. We won't get to every one of those questions by any means. But over the next month or so, we'll be following up with all of those questions, whether that be through email, conversation, on our website, uh, different mediums. Uh, and I'm really excited to be able to share with you all today. Uh, this series has been a lot of fun, uh, one of my favorite things to talk about. Uh, we've talked about the formation of faith. And we've talked about how sometimes when your faith doesn't feel all that solid, that's also normal. Uh, we've talked about the pervasive questions that come up, uh, the questions that keep you up at night, the questions you don't know what to do with, uh, the questions that never go away, um, the questions that many of us have. Um, we talked about the problem of suffering and pain. Uh, how does a, a loving and holy God allow bad things to happen? How does a powerful God allow bad things to happen? Um, and then we talked about the renovation process. Uh, we talked about the potentially long and honestly lifetime process of renovating your faith. Um, the small pieces, the, the things you add in, the, the questions that continue to arise, the more that you take out. Um, and then we're at today. Uh, the goal of today is, uh, is to answer some questions, but as we do, I'm almost certain that there will be some answers that don't always fit with everyone in the room. There's a quote that I want to bring up that I'd like you to be aware of as we answer questions today and really on how we approach faith in general, um, how we approach faith as Christians and how we approach people in the world. Um, and it's this one up here. In Essentials, Unity. In non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. This is a quote that is attributed to Rupertus Meldenius, or St. Augustine of Hippo, or John Wesley. Uh, but ultimately, what this quote says is, on the, the close-handed beliefs, um, on the things that are vital to my faith, um, we're going to ask us to come together. Um, and on the open-handed beliefs, the, the things that we're not always sure of an answer on the things that we go back and forth. We're going to have some liberty. We're going to allow dialogue. We're not going to create a hard wall and say, if, if you don't want to talk about it this way, there's no conversation because that gets us nowhere. And as we talked about last week, our understanding of truth changes. Scripture doesn't change. Truth doesn't change, but our understanding does the longer we walk with God. And finally, um, in all things charity. Uh, this may surprise you, but there are people in this room who don't have all the exact same beliefs as you. We can give a gasp real quick if you'd like. Um, there are people here who don't vote the same as you do. Again, we can gasp if we'd like. Um, 
we believe in all things charity, um, it, it doesn't help us to be divided. Uh, today, we're going to do a little bit of a panel discussion, and I have two friends I'm going to be inviting up, uh, and I am excited. Uh, the first I'll mention is my friend, Lene Spicer. Lene, if you can come on up. Um, can everyone give Lene a hand? Uh, Lene is wonderful, and I'm going to give her a chance to introduce herself, but I have to say I've known Lene for uh, about a decade and a half, um, have loved watching her up close and from afar. She's been on our elder team during multiple stints. Um, Lene is a wonderful, wonderful woman um, and a great love to my family, which is huge for me. Um, I love Lene, love what she has to bring, and after service, and I'll say this about both of our people, um, I would love to have you connect with Lene. Lene is, I think, one of the best and smartest people I know, um, and she also knows how to just be quiet and listen as well, which is what I'm going to say of our other person as well, which are both phenomenal qualities. Um, she can share deep insight, um, and she can listen to what you're going through. Um, so, Lene, can I ask you to introduce yourself if you have more than yeah. that to give? Uh, good morning, and thank you for welcoming me to the stage. Um, I'm a little nervous, I'll just say that out loud, but um, I have the privilege of being in a very, very small group of people here who happened to open the doors at Discovery in March of 1999. So yeah, I'm an old-timer. Um, I'm not the same person I was back then, by the grace of God, and I just want to thank Jake for those kind words and tell you I really don't believe a lot of that stuff, but um, I will tell you, while I don't have a seminary degree or, you know, I don't know what qualifies me to be up here, I do know Jesus, and he has walked me with some amazing teachers through this church and beyond, and um, his word doesn't fail me, and I'm up here in that confidence, so. Uh, and my, my husband's going to come, I think. He won't sit with me in the front row for sure. Oh, there's the couple. And uh, I have a couple kids, uh, four actually. One is here carrying my grandchild. God bless you. Thanks. Awesome. Can we give Lene a hand? <laughs> then I want to invite my other friend, Owen, up. Um, Owen Smiley has been at our church for, it has to be getting close to a decade by this point. About nine years. About nine years. Um, Owen does have a seminary degree. Um, Owen is a professor. He's one of my favorite people. I've gotten to see Owen teach um, in a professional setting. I've gotten to see him teach here in our church. I've gotten to see him lead small groups. Um, and he's a friend. Uh, Owen is just truly, as well, one of the best people I know, and I was so excited to invite Owen up as well. Um, Owen also is a person who, if you want to sit and talk with, um, has a lot of information and a lot of knowledge. He has books to reference for almost every answer that we have. Um, and he's also great at just sitting and listening. And I love Owen. Uh, Owen, do you want to give us a little more about yourself? So the problem with everything he just said is now there's like a really high expectation. <laughs> And I don't think I'm going to meet it. Um, my own journey, I, I grew up in the Bible Belt, uh, very much sitting on the fence of faith. Uh, met Jesus in college in a way that changed my life. Um, I looked around and thought, well, Christians are dumb. And because uh, I'd never seen a smart one. And so um, then I met a guy who had been to seminary and I wanted to be like him. So I went to seminary because I found out Christians could be smart and the questions I had could have answers. And so 
did my best to try to find some. I don't think I have them all. Definitely still walking that path. Um, I currently teach at a handful of different colleges, uh, mostly online. Uh, I teach religion courses. I teach um, humanities courses and philosophy courses. So we'll see what we can do today here. Awesome. Can we give Owen a hand? We're going to pull a table out and then we'll... We'll jump in on these questions. Um, and for the most part, I think that our team, I think, agreed on quite a bit and sometimes did not. And I think you'll see that. And it's good. I was reminded by something actually Owen said backstage as we were preparing for this. Um, I think we generally want an answer, and we want a quick answer. I would love to know that some of these questions literally have a yes, no, or an answer that I never have to worry about again. And that's just often not how it works. It's a, a circling of this mountain of discipleship. Um, so I think you'll see that in some of these things. Uh, we'll jump into the first question. Um, if the Holy Spirit was sent to guide us into all truth, why do so many different groups disagree about the meaning of the Bible? This is also known as pervasive interpretive pluralism. You can throw a rock and hit like 10 churches around here, all of whom might be teaching differently. How does that work? Okay, I got the nod. Um, great question. I think my... Here, here's how I look at it. I think the Bible can't say... Well, that's your line. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, nah, why don't you say it then? Okay, I'll start. That'll be a brave start. Um, one of my best experiences here was sitting with Tom Morris, um, Sarah Duffy, Sarah Little, sorry, Sarah, uh, we were all in this class together with um, Hermeneutics 101, which is basically how do you interpret the Bible? And there's a science to it. And science, as we know, is it science or is it art? Well, Fee and Stewart would say yes, but you're going to start with literature. Anything written must be interpreted. And a text can't mean what it never meant. So you got to pay attention to cultural context and history. And, um, and then, you know, I don't read a poem the same way I read um, a narrative. And just like you guys, you don't read the newspaper or your news feed. Oh, man, that was dated. Uh, news feed. <laughs> um, the same way you read um, a text from somebody you love or a love letter. So I do think there's something to be said about interpretation. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll kind of give two halves to my thoughts on this. My poor wife, everything comes from me in twos. Now my kids do it. Um, but um, I think, first of all, it's a question of where is the meaning and what the Bible is saying. And uh, if you can kind of picture a seesaw, if you will, on one end of the seesaw is the reader, and we would call that reader response. In other words, the meaning of the text is what I read into it, okay? Um, on the other side of that seesaw is what you would call the author's intention, in other words, you know, the human and God who together in a partnership composed this scripture had, it, had an intended meaning for the original audience. That intended meaning is the meaning of the text. And so there's kind of, it's kind of a seesaw between those two. I think pop culture, we tend to go much further toward the reader response side. I mean, just 
ask your kids why they like the music they listen to. It has nothing to do with what the music's actually trying to tell them. They just like it for some other reason, right? Um, but I tend to think that the original intended meaning is where the actual meaning is. Um, an example, if you need a comparison, would be uh, Noah's Ark, which is actually not, I guess it's his ark because he built it, but it isn't a God's story. Anyway, whatever. Um, you know, we tend to read, I remember as a kid going to my doctor's office and seeing Noah's Ark painted on the wall, and it was a get-to-know-your-animals story, and I thought, oh, that's what it's about. Never mind the fact it drowned the world. Um, so if you actually look at the way the story is designed, though, in the middle of it um, is where the meaning is, and the meaning is, I think it's chapter 8, verse 1. Don't quote me on that part, but it's basically God remembered Noah and his family and the people in the ark. And he made a wind come that made the water go away. That's the point of the story, according to the original audience. Now, we could read it, we could read something else into it. And that's, I think if it's within the realm of what Scripture teaches, I actually don't think that that's bad. Um, but the text can't say what it can't say, what it never meant to say. One more piece I'll share on this. Um, there's a lot of different perspectives on how uh, to read the Bible. And in a way, having those perspectives is actually kind of helpful because we can get locked in and we can miss some things. I'm thinking about the parable of the rich young man. Actually, it's not a parable. A rich young man comes up to Jesus, what must I do to earn eternal life? Jesus says, okay, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And just to give you three different perspectives on that, um, the common Western perspective today, um, the perspective I was raised with, teaches us that, that this is mostly symbolic and that we need to take the idea of wealth, and it always comes second. Jesus comes first. Okay. Um, then in the 1800s, there's a guy named Soren Kierkegaard, a philosopher. Um, he wrote some really complicated and hard to read stuff, but he has a great quote about this particular passage. He says, gosh, I'm, really, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, gosh, I'm really glad for Bible scholars because we'd be broke otherwise. Um, and then there's an African perspective on this, which would suggest something different. It would say that, yeah, of course this guy has to sell everything he has. Why? Because he acquired it through exploitation of the poor, and it was sinfully gained. So it should be freely given back to the people he took it from. Now, you and I read the story, and we're like, where'd you get that from? But if you actually do some of the research into how life worked back then, that is how people got rich. And as I go and buy my clothes from stores that may have manufactured them in sweatshops, I should be careful. <laughs> and I should probably hear that perspective. I have two things to add on to this. Uh, one, one of the first books I ever read on reading and understanding the Bible is a book called Living by the Book uh, by Howard and William Hendricks. It's about 70 chapters, and every chapter is about two pages long. Uh, it's very easy to read. Uh, he talks about how when most of us approach Scripture, we approach it from an application lens. Uh, we look at Scripture and think, how does this apply to our lives? And we ask, how does this apply to our lives? Um, he equates it to building a house. He says that's like trying to buy a house and building the roof first. Um, he says Scripture is looked at through an observation and then an interpretation and then an application lens. When we're starting with application, we're missing most of the house building. Um, Living by the book, phenomenal book if you're looking at jumping in and interpreting the Bible. Um, the second one is a book that we quoted a while back um, called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, um, which was an eye-opening book for me. Uh, just this idea that uh, the Bible was written in an agricultural culture, uh, not in a Western culture, not similar to us, and there are ways that we read Scripture um, 
with the way that we were raised. Uh, phenomenal book as well, written by a pastor. Um, definitely worth the read. All right, on to question two. God may have forgiven me for my past, but I either seem to be unable or unwilling to forgive myself. How can I forgive myself like God has forgiven me? Okay, I'm taking this one. I just want to acknowledge you, whoever wrote the question, and I want to affirm the pain that you're carrying and the burden. And that's going to frame my response. And I also share that pain and burden. Um, There's a lot of elements of this question. You know, there's the forgiveness of God. There's my past. And then there's this, what is it? Is it unable or unwilling? Um, The one I want to talk about is unable, unwilling. Um, Because I think I've been there. And I think one reason... um, it was easy for me to stay in a place of where I, I can forgive other people, but I can't forgive myself. Um, and, and also, I'll clarify by saying, I wish I could sit down with you, and I wish I could hear your story. Um, because that burden is the very thing that Jesus wants to free us from. And we can know that up here, and we can go find Bible verses, and we can ha- sit with counselors, but, you know, there's this... My friend Henrietta calls it a 1,000-foot drop from your head down into your heart. And so it's this idea that where is that living? If you know that God has forgiven you and you see that in the sacrifice of Christ, why can't you let go? And there's probably a lot of reasons. Um, When I carry is I was raised with a really powerful, tiny helper, (laughs) She's called my inner critic. I call her little Lene sometimes. And I know now that she was probably something I clung to to really keep me safe in a really messed up world. Like, think about our babies. These babies are bored. I was watching a Chenua rolling around back there before the service, and I was like, Kai, what a thing. Like, she's holding the communion cup and you know, smashing it and rolling all over, and she's just trying to figure out the world and stay safe. Well, my way was this little voice that said, don't do that. Shame on you. Be careful. You know, and so she comes up a lot still to remind me. And I've had to welcome that part of her and say, hey, thanks for your efforts, but I got somebody who tells me the truth now, and you can come listen to it. And the truth is, I have to accept the forgiveness of God. I have to be willing to, like a Chenua, sit there with her safely in her mother's arms, knowing she's loved, knowing she's cared for, crying when I need something. Like, I have to go back to that baby place um, because that, for me, has been a helpful way to receive the love of God and to forgive myself. So call me, whoever you are. I have to speak from experience on this one instead of books, which I'm actually very glad to do because um, I think I think what I love about this question is its vulnerability, its honesty, and it's just demonstrating proof that following Jesus is a way of life. It's not just believing the right things. 
Um, and so I don't have a lot to add to what Lene had to say. Um, what I would suggest, just thinking out loud, is that this is probably not a one-time process. It's probably something that takes years. and probably takes a very long time. It's also probably very hard to do alone. And so um, for anyone who has been in this place or is in this place, I would encourage you to seek out help. Help can be lots of different things. It can be a church. It can be a small group. It can be a best friend. It can be five best friends. It could be, well, five best friends is a small group. Uh, it could be uh, it could be a counselor and uh, lots of different ways to, to find the resources to know that you're not walking through that alone. And I would encourage you to reach out to someone here at Discovery to learn more about that. It's good. My very small, maybe, I'm just going to use Owen's. No, I'm going to use mine. Uh, my very small addition to throw onto that uh, is, uh, so I didn't grow up in an era of church where counseling, mental health, um, asking for help was reviled. I have grown up in a great time of church. I've been a part of some amazing churches. Um, Discovery has resources, like financial resources, if you actually are looking for help in this situation. Um, I'm not at all trying to tie this question to anything with mental health, anything like that, but I just want to make a pitch that Discovery has resources, has partnerships, and we would like to spend that money on help. Um, and it's anonymous. Um, we start the process, and then we never hear about it again. There you go. All right, next question. It's long. Um, I love that Discovery's communion is open in the aspect that it doesn't matter what church you came from. I appreciate the inclusiveness and the focus on Jesus, but I also wonder if the covenant aspect is missing. There are biblical examples of how the shedding of blood is important to oaths and covenants. The Lord's covenant with Abram had him walk between sacrificed animals. Other examples include blood sprinkled on the tabernacle as well as blood painted on the doorpost signaling who chose to believe in God's warnings. In communion, we again have an important symbol of blood. It seems like participation in that is more than just considering what Jesus means. You should be associated with a choice to follow him. Um, for anyone who's new and doesn't understand this question, uh, here at Discovery, we practice what we call open communion. Um, anyone is welcome to take communion with us as long as they're willing to reflect on what it means uh, that 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, uh, lived a perfect life, and died for you and I, which is quite a bit different from how many people are raised so I'll pass to our people on how they approach this question, having both sat in the way we've done communion and in previous ways of doing communion with other churches for a long time. Hi, is it on? Okay. It doesn't, the light's not on, so that's why I'm, I'm lost and confused. Okay, um, so I grew up in a 30-person liturgical 1940 hymnal, page 15 church, and uh, I still have a couple of those in my house. Uh, and um, I remember when they asked me to be an usher, because I guess that's what you do when you're 16 and you're, you're the youth group, um, was uh, uh, I remember them telling me, like, don't, don't have that person take communion because they're not a member. And it was jarring, and I didn't, uh, I didn't listen to them. Um, but uh, then, then they stopped asking me to be an usher. Um, <laughs> So I, I've, I've, being raised in that side, I've, I've kind of landed on the other side. And I think what I would point out uh, are a couple of things. Um, first of all, the Last Supper, Jesus is 
sharing it for the very first time with his disciples, it seems pretty clear to me that not all of them are convinced of who Jesus is. Uh, Judas Iscariot is in that crowd. I have a hunch that if he really believed Jesus was the Son of God, he might not have betrayed him. Um, also in that crowd is Thomas, who, after Jesus rose from the dead, decided to believe, but only when he had seen Jesus' wounds after seeing him alive again and said, wow, you really are God. Um, so I'll point that out. And then I'm not sure if the reference here is necessarily to Genesis 15, but the, uh, the, the dream that Abraham has there um, is an old, old ancient Near Eastern ritual where you would take the sacrificed animals and you basically lay them on either side. There's a path in between. And the way that it was supposed to work is that the weaker party, the guys who are about to be subjects of the new king, they're supposed to walk through this bloody path and then give their allegiance to the king and basically say, whatever happens to them may it happen to me if I disobey you. Now in the dream, at the end of the altar there, because you know, nobody knows what God's look, God looks like, it's actually like a fire pot symbol of a, for God, but in the dream, it's actually the symbol for God that walks through the path, not Abraham. And what that essentially teaches Abraham is God says, I want you to follow me and I'll take on whatever happens regardless if you disobey. And sure enough, Jesus died on the cross 1,500 years later, 2,000 years later. So, I'm really glad somebody asked about communion. It's a, it's a very important part of my worship here at Discovery. I grew up in a Protestant potpourri. I also was the only member of the youth group at one time. Uh, but during that really interesting tour of the 11 churches in my hometown, I, I remember we tried the Lutheran, and I learned the Apostles' Creed, but I was not allowed to take communion there, and uh, that was interesting. And then other churches didn't even practice it, and I think I kind of dismissed it for many years until we started this church. And from the beginning, com the communion, uh, because we're kind of out of the restoration movement, it, it's like a almost has like a sacramental quality. It, it is one of the things that we elevate as weekly. Like a lot of churches don't even do that. So what about that? And I like should. Should it be associated with a choice to follow him? And so I want to concentrate on that because like I also agree with Owen, when you go back to the, um, the meal, where Jesus is kind of saying weird stuff. Like, this is my body. This meal that they've been practicing for hundreds of years is part of their religious things. And then he's, he's elevating this. It, Jesus is there. And not only did Jesus invite him, he let him get really, really close. And Judas also had a choice. And Judas made his choice. And that has nothing to do with the meal or the invitation. So again, I, I feel like for me, communion is such an important part of to just bring who I am today. Who am, what am I going through today, Jesus? Do you really believe I care? Or that you, do I believe that you care? And can I really say the truth thing about me today? And I, I just feel the way of doing that together at a meal that was prepared for me, a meal that was that has already taken care of things, but it wrestles with my real body. Like, you gotta chew this up. 
and you got to swallow this and you got to concentrate. So when we say, hey, consider Jesus, well, do that because that's really important because we do think it's a choice to follow. Great. I have nothing to add to that. Um, I will say this is one of our, our questions that are asked quite a bit, quite often. Uh, so I would encourage you, if you have this question and you want to discuss more about it, and these answers are not enough, that's okay. In fact, this is true of any of these questions. Um, we would love to dialogue more and more. Um, all right, this next one's a little bit heavier. Um, I struggle with seeing how physical our personality and choices are. Uh, what I mean is this. When someone has a head injury or Alzheimer's or other physically linked mental problems, their personality can go from kind to abusive. If our fruits of the spirit can disappear with a physical change, it makes it harder for me to believe that there is a soul beyond the physical that can be judged. Um, I do think it's important, um, and I'm passing, I believe, to Owen on this one, that there are a, a number of different kinds of questions we receive, right? Some are theological. They're what we might call open-handed. Uh, hey, I'm, I'm pondering this. Um, and some questions come with a side to it that this is probably a today question. Um, and I think we want to do our best to hold that intention and recognize the difference between those types of questions. Pass it over. Um, I'm also going to kind of tackle this one from a more personal perspective. Um, I have a family member with dementia who does not know anymore who I am. And I have another family member who's almost there. Um, I also teach a philosophy class called the Philosophy of Death and Dying. That's not marketing, by the way. I'm not suggesting you take it. Uh, it's an interesting group that always signs up for it, and it's a lot of fun. And it's, um, it's amazingly pastoral, which is a surprise in some ways. But then again, um, I remember the first night uh, last spring when I taught it, and a young guy in the front who didn't look like he was going to care much for this class uh, goes to show you can't judge a book by its cover, raises his hand at the end, and he says, my mom has Alzheimer's, or no, my grandma has Alzheimer's, he said, and I don't know how much longer I have with her. Do you think she has a soul? Oh. And um, I guess what, this is not something that I feel like I have fully figured out, but here's what I am certain on, and here's what I think. I am fairly certain that we have souls. I mean, I, I think that's very clear from the scriptures, and I think there are very good philosophical reasons for that. Um, I think it's very... And for me, I would say a soul is the part of us that is immaterial. I'm not going to go any more in depth than that. I mean, some people will use the word heart. Some people use the word mind. Um, I think that there's, but I think it's very much the immaterial part of us. Um, there are some counter arguments to that. So if you're sitting here saying, nah, I don't buy what he said. Our brains are just, it's just the hardware. I get it. Try talking to your Alexa. It doesn't have a soul. Um, <laughs> They're not that smart. I have too many of them in my house. Uh, so, um, so, yes, I think that's true. My understanding of neurodegenerative disease is that, uh, and I am not a doctor, is that um, there are plaques and tangles that develop uh, among the clusters of neurons, and those actually prevent uh, neurotransmitters and other memories to be able to function. And so what happens over time there is... Um, the, per, the individual with this neurodegenerative disorder is no longer able to access those memories. I don't think it means that that person isn't there. I think they probably can't get out. And that's very painful for me to think about. But I do think that they're there. 
Thank you. I wanted to acknowledge the pain behind this question as well. Um, part of my healing journey has been, um, I don't know, the desire to kind of not be holy, but be whole, you know, like I want my body to be strong and healthy and I want my mind to be clear. The Bible says I have the mind of Christ. <laughs> what does that even mean? Uh, I want my heart and my emotions to be, um, well, I want to be human. I want to feel my feelings and, you know, do that in a healthy way. And so that journey to wholeness for me has had me consider, and I don't want to get into the definitions of soul and spirit because I know that's what that is, a, that's a hornet's nest. Um, but the way I do understand it is, I asked Tim Daly, who's the OG pastor of the church, hey, what is this thing about fruit of the spirit? Because I think if we're honest, a lot of us think we go pick it. <laughs> well, you don't. It comes out of you. And so I love your image about somebody being trapped inside. And I also, you know, many of us here carry the pain of watching a dear friend here succumb to an illness that kept him trapped in his body. And it's like, I remember watching that and thinking, what is that like? I, it was so painful, I couldn't, even, I couldn't even go say goodbye because I just was like, I don't even want to think about that kind of pain. But I do know this, whatever is good in us that comes out or whatever is bad, it's all God's work, right? It's the spirit that comes out. And so I, I would challenge this person to say, hey, guess what? just because they're saying mean things or don't recognize you or just because your body doesn't work or just because you have trauma in your body and you can't get over your, like, there's so many ways we're broken. That has nothing to do with the spirit who grows something good in us that is eternal. And I think we can experience here on earth. And I don't think we have to answer all those questions, but we do have to understand fruit is, Psalm 1 is, you know, Let's see if I can do it. I've been trying to memorize a little bit. Um, oh, what joy for those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or, or um, something with the mockers. And then they delight on the, Lord, on the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like a tree planted by the riverbank, bearing fruit in each season. So there's something valuable about that person who knew God, who's still there, that might be dormant, or, but just because they're in that stage doesn't diminish their value or what God is doing in and through them. And that goes for anybody who's struggling. I want to add one more thing. I loved your thoughts, by the way. Thank you. Um, I think that this also, for me, this gives, makes heaven much more sweet because it means that one day I will see this person and I will have all those conversations I can't have now. And we'll have them as long as we want. And that's something to look forward to. All right, we're getting to one more question here and we're gonna do this one quick as best we can. Um, because this question I think is actually a nest of a lot of questions. Uh, how does free will align with God harden their hearts and predestiny? Does everyone have a choice to follow Jesus, and why does God harden hearts? For anyone who doesn't understand this question, um, this comes from Israel in Egypt, in captivity. Um, and as Moses is going to meet with Pharaoh, 
it continuously says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, and then we have these plagues, we have this crazy story. Um, but there's a question behind this question that I think it's important to address on how we read Scripture as well, which is in general, there are a lot of stories that we read that get a little uncomfortable, um, and we often tend to skip through it. Um, Owen made reference to Noah and the Ark. It's a beautiful story about God bringing animals onto an ark and then a flood killing a bunch of people. This story is another one, and many. And so I think relating back to what we've talked about in the series, how do you approach hard questions or hard thoughts in the Bible? I think it's just a question to ask back to you. Um, do you skip it? Do you ruminate on it? Um, I remember asking this question months into becoming a Christian because it was uncomfortable. Uh, I think this is Owen. Um, and Owen, you have a I'm, I'm just going to start, right, which means I can't really answer it well. Um, sure. So when I saw this question, my thought had to do a lot with how does free will work in a world where God is in charge? And there's a lot of different views on that. Um, I lean towards something called middle knowledge, which is not something that you can explain in 90 seconds. So if you're like, what's that? Let's talk after service. Um, I would tell a story like this. I have four children. If I sit each of them around the dinner table and in front of each of them, I give them a plate of broccoli and a bowl of ice cream and a spoon. And I say, have at it. I, I am not God. I don't have God's knowledge in the slightest, but I know exactly what each of them is going to do. And it's going to be a little different for each of them because my youngest probably won't have either because he'll be concerned the ice cream got contaminated by its closeness to the broccoli. So, um, and then my, yeah, my second's not going to have the ice cream at all because he hates ice cream, so he'll just sit there. But uh, me knowing that doesn't change that they made a choice. And I think that there are actually pretty coherent ways to understand that God can be in charge and we do still have freedom of will and freedom to make choices, um, which I think is incredibly important as it helps us understand a lot of how, for example, suffering works and how, um, how God works with us and what our role is in bringing Jesus to the world around us and showing God's love. No. Way. Not doing this one. Like I said, we had about two dozen questions submitted. We just got through five, which is not all of them. Um, again, over the coming weeks, we'll be going through these in a number of mediums. But as we close up, I want to invite the band back out. Um, and I want to name a quick tension, which is this is going to be a really weird transition to worship. Um, and it is as we sit here and we answer questions. But that's where we're going next is this time of worship this time of singing together, this time of praising God. Um, I want to thank Owen and Lene. Uh, both of them are available after service if you'd like to chat. Again, they're both amazing people who have a wealth of knowledge between them, and they're amazing at listening, and you can't ask for a better combination. Um, we have that quote that we said at the beginning. Um, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. As we approach this topic and as we approach these questions, um, I would ask all of us to consider what are our close-handed beliefs? Uh, what are the beliefs that we call essential that we would die for, that we would fight to the death for? Um, and then how do we unify around those? Um, what are the open-handed beliefs? Uh, what are the beliefs that you believe and you think this is what Scripture says, but if someone were to show you that it's completely different, 
Um, that change in your understanding of God probably doesn't have a huge effect on your tomorrow. Um, the non-essentials, and in all things, in this church where um, some people vote one way, some people vote another, uh, in a church where some people believe in some dough, in a church that as we take communion, there are some who just have this uncomfortable twinge because that's not how you're supposed to take communion. How do we show charity? How do we show love? Over the next few months coming out of this series, we're going to be talking about discipleship, faith, um, the journey of a believer, and how do you grow in your faith? How do you learn? What does depth look like which feels appropriate? Um, can we end by giving a hand to Owen and Lene? Just so excited to have them. Um, they are worth reaching out to. Um, and I'm going to pass off to Drew to take us from here.